So welcome to another show. Today we have Gary Simmons on the show, who is a retired neurosurgeon, amongst other things, such as being an author. So welcome to today's show, Gary. Thanks uh, so very much for having me. What a pleasure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Pleasure's all mine, mate. Pleasure's all mine. So neuroscience is, is, I think, quite a hot topic at the moment, especially with people like Andrew Huberman talking about it quite extensively, having such a big podcast. So what's your experience? Because neuroscience is quite a broad area, isn't it, I suppose? What's specifically your experience? Obviously, you're retired now, but but what was your main area of expertise? Well, um, I, I'm retired from surgery uh, now, but I still teach, actually teach neuroscience uh, to undergrads and med students. But, um, you know, the predominance obviously was in the surgical realm, uh, including a lot of brain surgery and uh, spinal surgery. And uh, I, I was kind of a jack of all trades. I, I did pretty much the whole gamut of, of neurosurgery. And now I, I teach mostly general neuroscience uh, and the neuroscience of basic neurological illnesses and diseases. So what does that look like? Is that things like ADHD, schizophrenia, et cetera, or are there more niche diseases that you, you are alluding to? No, I, I mean, those would certainly be uh, come in the, you know, in the gamut of things, uh, more commonly probably brain tumors, um, trauma to the brain, uh, Alzheimer's, multiple sclerosis, all sorts of, uh, different diseases there's there is uh unfortunately many many so have you noticed an uptick in in alzheimer's disease and if so have you got a your own opinion as to why that's happened is it the the, the metals aluminium etc which is what I, one of the things i've heard well excuse me for one sec um i think uh you know the there's a mixture of things that go on. Um, we certainly know that uh, there's, you know, we're just subject to a heck of a lot more toxins out there. Um, we also live a lot longer uh, than even just a few decades ago. And I think uh, one of the highest risk factors for Alzheimer's is actually age. Uh, so as we, as we live longer, you know, certain things are uh, potentially gonna get us, uh, but, you know, we believe it or not, we still don't really know what's going on in Alzheimer's. We really don't know uh, the trigger. We know a lot about the pathology and the pathophysiology, but we're not actually overly uh, confident that we know what causes it. I'm I'm glad that you said about the the age thing, and I've got a like a, a theory, but it's obviously not proven or anything like that. But I was thinking one day. The, the brain is obviously a very complicated piece of equipment. It's very intelligent. You know, you can do complex sums and remember pretty much unlimited bits of information. But if we go back 30, 40, 50, 60 years, the amount of stimulus that the brain would consume in a day-to-day -day basis was a lot less. There'd be a lot more relaxation time. You know, you're not listening to podcasts 24-7. You're not writing books. You're not, you know, driving a car, which, again, takes a lot of cognitive function. Um, you know, adverts are coming at us, we're working nine to five, all of these things, TV even, again, that's a cognitive use of time, cooking, etc. Could it be a case of actually using all of the brain's allocation of function, essentially, during 
that period of time, whether it's sixty years, fifty years, whatever, and then after that, it's the brain's kaput. After that, could that be a could that be an option? Um, I am not aware of a lot of uh, strong evidence behind that, but I, you know, anything is possible when you start uh, getting into these things. One of the things we actually do know about Alzheimer's is keeping an active brain. Uh, is actually somewhat protective. You know, it's not 100%, it's not a 100% vaccination, but keeping an active brain, keeping learning things, learning new languages, getting into new uh, hobbies, um, staying engaged uh, is, is somewhat protective. Uh, so can we overdo it? I, I suppose I would argue maybe that... Um, uh, another another disorder that I, I'm very interested in uh, may be more susceptible to what you're talking about, and that's burnout. Uh, I do think we live in this hyper complex society, as you're alluding to, and and it's coming at us a mile a minute, and uh, we're really not geared to to be handling a million things at once. You know, we're not truly multitaskers. Our our systems will focus on one thing at a time and then switch back and forth. Uh, but we, it seems like we can certainly overload them. So I think uh, I think there are certainly potential effects of of this universe that we're in. So, so with regards to burnout, would you, uh, you use the word? Did you use the word disorder there for for burnout? Uh, it seems to be a decent uh, word. That's, that's interesting that you've used the word disorder because I would never sort of um, allocate it to a disorder. I would I would see it as. Um, like an overwork i don't even know what i would classify it as but this is i'm actually interested in the word the fact that you were you use the word disorder there because that seems to me like there's something that we can do to 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 manage burnout are there certain things that we can do to to stop burnout and if we actually get burnout is there things that we can do to manage it from there onwards yeah i would i would absolutely uh argue that there is i think uh, prophylactically, what what we've worked on um, for a long time now is the idea of building resilience, being able to face stressors and not be damaged by them, not be uh, brought down to, by them. And there's all sorts of strategies and methodologies that we can do to help build our resilience. Um, I think once, you know, once we're in a burnout state, I, I, it's not black and white. I think it's something uh, that you can drift in and out of. I think it's very much on a spectrum, uh, but doing things that that uh, help help our brains kind of reorganize, restructure, uh, chill out, as you're as you're alluding to. Uh, can certainly go a long way. There's there's a metaphor that I think. Uh, works well for me, at least for for thinking about burnout. And that is, we all have kind of a bank of energy within us, that energy that allows us to do the daily uh, things we do in life, uh, get up and get to work and do our things, uh, face people, be, be civil, be kind. Um, it takes a certain amount of energy and we all have it in us. Um, and I would say that everything we experience, everything we encounter, every uh, every person, every place, everything we see and hear, including our own uh, our own uh, mental meanderings and thoughts and feelings, they're either energy, uh, they're either adding energy to that bank, making a deposit, or they're withdrawing it. 
And I think the easiest thing is to come up with all sorts of things that withdraw it. That's for sure. I mean, we can all think of the things that that really, you know, suck the life out of us. But to me, burnout would be a situation where you're just overdrawn. You know, you, you're taking so much out of that energy bank that there's not much there uh, to be used. And then even the simple things that normally restore it just aren't going to restore it uh, quick enough. And so we we are in this state of depletion. Yeah, I mean, I, I think of burnout in, in a number of ways, really. There seems to be some sort of culture nowadays that, you know, unless you're killing it, you're working 25 hours a day and, and you know, doing that extra mile, that extra step, that extra email, unless you're like stressed out working so hard, you're never going to make it. That that seems to be a, a sort of underlying concept that many people buy into, especially, you know, motivational speakers, et cetera, seem to say, oh, you know, you're not working hard enough. But actually, that's not really the case. It's, it's a case of working smarter, not harder, in, in, in fairness. And maybe that is something that learn, leads to burnout. Maybe it's a case of not doing something that you enjoy, as you said about depleting your resources. If you're doing a job that you hate, it's probably more likely or the likelihood of you experiencing burnout is a lot more than it would be otherwise. Now, there is obviously an argument as to whether correlation and causation are a thing, um, because with any argument, there are obviously fallacies involved. So are there certain things that correlate with burnout or cause burnout, as I said, um, or is it just a case of it could be a, a whole host of things? Yeah, I would I would argue that it's definitely come under the category of a whole host of things. And I think every individual is going to be different and what potentially drags them down uh, and what potentially adds energy back to the bank, if you will, is going to differ from person to person. But we do know that, you know, burnout is fairly common, particularly in people who are bright, energized, uh, you know, go-getters, if you will, who are in high demand and low control situations, which is basically, you know, something that you're talking about. You know, you're supposed to be going, 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 going. And, and yet you may feel like, I'm doing all this and it's not getting us anywhere. I'm not moving the needle uh, one bit. And so situations like that uh, definitely can uh, certainly precipitate uh, one degree or another of burnout. And I think basically uh, any stressors, any unresolved stressors, uh, that continue to deplete us are going to add to this. So you you know you can basically come up with lists and lists of things that that stress us and uh, potentially deplete us. So is it a case of dealing with the stress as much as anything else? Because you can put ten people into a room or into an experience, and some will get stressed, some will get scared, and some won't. Is 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 that a real crucial part of it as well? Yeah, again, I, I think all of us have different set points and different ways we respond to things. And we talk about we talk about kind of a, in the psychological aspect of this, that our responses to stressors can either be what we call adaptive or maladaptive. And when we say that, it's not a pejorative term. Maladaptive doesn't isn't pejorative. It doesn't mean we're doing the wrong thing. What it means is either our responses are either 
you know, ultimately helping us, making us feel better, making us more right with the world, or they're not, which would be the maladaptive responses. And so one of the ways of, of dealing with burnout and trying to handle it uh, potentially is to identify the stressors and figure, are our responses adaptive or are they maladaptive? And can we switch? Can we uh, find a way that we meet our stressors and not get dragged down by them. So yeah, I think you know, I think your point is very well taken. Coming on to the word responses, because that opens up a, another can of worms. You obviously, as you as you sort of self self profess there, you know, you're a generalist. You you teach a wide range of neuroscience, and there are a lot of areas. So how things are affected by how we think. You know, James Allen as a man thinker, things like that. Does optimism and pessimism affect affect the brain? So do do, do we have res responses mentally to how we think about things as well, or is there not enough in terms of evidence to to sort of mix a science with what we feel on an intuition basis? Yeah, it's a great question, um, and I would argue that the science very much is beginning to align. Um, you know, with some of these more a priori uh, conceptualizations that I think a lot of, uh, to us, make a lot of sense, at least. So I think one of the best ways to look at this or to think about this, uh, I'm going to step back one bit, but I, I, I think a lot of people see the brain as being very hardwired, as as being just like our computers, you know, it gets it gets put together, it gets assembled in a factory and the wiring, the wiring diagrams, the way everything's put together, the way everything within the computer uh, communicates with itself, uh, all the wiring is, is pretty much set in the factory. And that's what you got from that point on. You can load it with a lot of software, which is what we do when we teach. I mean, we, we learn and read and all that sort of thing. We're loading our, our mainframe, if you will, with software. Um, but I think a lot of people see the brain that way and, and it's far from it. The brain, the brain definitely from person to person has a certain amount of hardwiring, if you will. In other words, our major networks are set up fairly similarly, at least, the major networks in the brain. But boy, when you get down to the individual neurons, when you get down to individual one neuron communicating with another, it is in constant flux. It is in constant change. And it is absolutely affected by our environments, by uh, what we're processing, what we're thinking. Uh, and therefore, the argument can be made is it can be changed. It can be changed for the better or for the worse. A lot of the studies have gone into um, when it's made for the worse. So when we subject uh, lab animals, for example, to constant stress, uh, we can watch their wiring diagrams. We can watch their individual uh, neuron communications and various networks actually changing, actually morphing. And, and there is evidence in humans when you start looking at uh, functional MRIs and that sort of thing that, that very much are in sync with this, that certain areas of your brain, for example, when you are subjected to constant or high degrees of stress, certain areas of your brain shrink 
And they're, they're very much kind of the high processing areas of your brain. And other areas of your brain are magnified. And these tend to be your fight or flight areas of your brain, your stress response areas of your brain, your, for example, one area is called the amygdala, which very much is geared in with emotions, particularly fear and anxiety and um, anger reactions, and that will become magnified. Why? Because it's like the the, the brain starts to adjust to be being constantly under stress and in this fight or flight pattern. Whereas if you can shift it to a much more positive uh, environment, then theoretically you you begin to groove the networks that are more tied into higher processing. Uh, and and reward centers and that sort of thing of the brain. So long and short of it is the brain the brain is in constant flux, constant change, and is absolutely responsive to both our inner and outer environments. Is this sort of neuroplasticity then, in respect of it adapts and changes in line with how our behavior is essentially? Yeah, you could definitely categorize it as a form of neuroplasticity. Sometimes in the neuroplasticity discussion, you know, we 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 tend to be thinking of major, uh, you know, major network rewiring or areas taking over uh, for areas that are lost. So you think of maybe after a stroke, people often will talk about plasticity. But uh, you know, it, it very much goes all the way down, as I say, to these microscopic levels and and. You know, the way one neuron communicates with another is through what we call synapses. And those synapses are constantly changing, constantly upgrading or downgrading and making new ones and taking away others. So it's 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 really, to me, one of the more fascinating things about the nervous system. And I think actually ultimately one of the more one of the more optimistic things, because I do think we can change it for the better. Yeah, I mean, I'm again, I'm not a scientist and, you know, I can't do these experiments, but my sort of experience is that the brain is very malleable. You know, if you, the weeds grow by default unless you plant, you know, good good plants. And, you know, if you do um, um, consciously practice the right things, you see this with sportsmen, you know, they change their golf swing or they change how they punch into a punch bag. And after time, it goes from the subconscious to the conscious and it then becomes an automated sort of, function in in regards of the subconscious mind um is is that something that we can do with how our actual brain operates in terms of thinking or is it just how we feel if that makes sense is there any hardwiring changes you think we can make by thought alone or is it a case of well if you are born with certain um hereditary conditions there's nothing you can do about it so um, I, I, I mean, you'll you'll know better than than I will. Uh, the sort of examples there are there. Yeah, I think if you you know if you have a a major disruption of major networks in your brain, again, a stroke's a good example, or a severe head injury or something like that, it can be very hard to rewire enough to get everything up and running back to normal. But I think on, you know, on a less drastic level, we absolutely can change things. And so, for example, I, I mean, a lot of the, th the work we've done with burnout 
has been to groove people's thinking. And do I know, you know, what exactly is changing within the brain? No, but you can you can kind of experiment with these things just on on yourself. So so for example, one one strategy that that we uh, ask people to try uh, is for a for two to three weeks to go into your world, into your life, and write down five things during the day that go that that bring you pleasure, bring you joy, that make you feel happy. Just five good things a day and write them down. And I guess you could do it on your phone, but I would do it on a I do it on a cue card or something. Um, but write them down and do that and when you get home at night, maybe just before going to bed, just take a look at those five things and and remember them. But uh, do that for about two to three weeks. And what people find is that they don't have to make themselves do it. They don't have to say, okay, now look for things, keep searching for things. What happens is the brain starts searching for them itself. It starts noticing these good things that are happening around you. And so you've you've already trained your brain in just a matter of a couple of weeks. And then when we look at people's mood elevation and that sort of thing in, in these circumstances, when they do that, their overall you know mood is improved, their their resilience is improved, and and that sort of thing. So you know simple exercises. Most of the time, where we kind of you know force ourselves into repetition, uh, will often groove a different. Uh, a different response. I love that because it's something that I actually do every morning, write down things I'm grateful for, write down my goals and things like that. Um, statements like self-talk and things like that. But the other thing that I also try and do, similar to what you've said there, in terms of a, a practical exercise that you can do, is anything that goes bad for me, and uh, I use inverted commas there, quote unquote, bad, um, on the face of it, I try and think of positives that can happen. So, an example I use, let's say your car breaks down on your drive. Obviously, it's not good because you're going to have to spend money and, you know, you're going to have to get a lift somewhere or get a taxi. But the positive or the 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 less negative side is that you could have broken down. I mean, your car's going to break down at some point. You could have broken down a thousand miles from home on your own in the rain with no phone. So it, things could always be a lot worse. And I think that's a really good way to try and look at your life like you might have lost your job but now you've got a chance to start a business you didn't like your job anyway you didn't like your boss you can find a new job close to home with higher pay so i think that's also a really good thing that people can do to um to try and as you said reprogram your mind to start thinking about these things without necessarily you needing to consciously do it all the time yeah i mean i, I think it's a it's a great point um that just reframing things and i i would argue that that is an example of meeting stressors and trying to find a more adaptive way to respond to that stressor rather than giving in to anger or woe is me or whatever. Uh, can I shift the way that I respond to that stressor and, and uh, come out feeling better for it? Again, it's not necessarily the right way or the wrong way. It's just a more adaptive 
adaptive way to eventually bring you to where you want to be. I, I think a great example, um, and there used to be, I think it was Louis C.K. had a bit on this in comedy, uh, but just talking about, you know, traveling, and particularly when we travel by air, I think a lot of people get really wound up and, you know, it gets really easy to get angry about this and that and a 15-minute delay and stuff. On the other hand, you can you can kind of reframe it and think, my goodness, I am I am going from one point to another in the world in a matter of hours that it, you know, not that long ago may have taken weeks, may have resulted in half the people dying, you know, just trying to do it. Uh, and here I am able to do it in hours. I have a son who lives out in LA and, you know, I, we get, we get in the plane and within four or five, I guess it's five hours. We're there. We're, we're in LA. Yeah, exactly. I think we need to to appreciate where we are. People always want to complain. We do have a negativity bias, don't we? We'll be trying, you know, we see the negative and everything. But actually, the stuff that you've got in your life now, you probably wished four or five years ago. You know, you've got your own house. You know, for yeah. example, you might have a dog. You, you know, you're having kids. You're getting married. You, 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 you wanted that house and you wanted that mortgage, but you're complaining about the repayments. But everything that happens to you, the side effects come with that. You know, if you've got kids... You're going to have to probably wake up during the night sometimes. So you can't then complain about that when it's part and parcel of what, of what you'd wished for, essentially. So moving on from um, the actual neuroscience part, because I know that as well as um, a lecturer and obviously a retired practitioner, you also write books. So you've yes. got what, three nonfiction and one fiction. Is that, is that right? Yep, and a uh, another another novel on the way, and two more being sketched right now. So let's talk about the the nonfiction ones first. Are they to do with neuroscience, or is it something slightly different? Yeah, they they're actually all about burnout. Um, so I, I got into the burnout business about fifteen years ago, I guess, uh, and um, that that's what what the books are about. I mean, I spent a I spent a career you know, writing about neurosurgery and all that sort of thing and various articles and pieces and stuff like that. But when it came to actually writing books, uh, it came down to writing about burnout and healthcare workers because it's a big problem. So is it specifically healthcare workers where you think, was that based on your personal experience or do you think that's a, a, an area that is probably more prone than other areas because of the you know levels of stress, the long hours, et cetera, and maybe the the more sensitive side of the job as well as you said you know people with diseases come in etc is it maybe a bit of all of those why burnout is so so prevalent yeah i you know to be honest i would argue that it's probably almost you know if not more prevalent in various industries and various walks of life it's just that i i was so immersed in the healthcare world i i didn't feel qualified to start talking about the business world or anything else. And, but I do know the healthcare world very well. And so that's why, why we kind of stayed uh, focused on that. I, you know, for example, one thing about healthcare, one of the things we know is that um, if you, if you can derive a sense of meaning out of your work, if you, you know, if you, you can feel like I'm doing something, uh, it, it is somewhat 
protective. In fact, it can be very protective uh, against burnout. And therefore, we see people putting in, you know, super long hours and super efforts in the healthcare sphere, in the healthcare sphere. So we do have a nice, you know, a nice piece of healthcare is you always kind of have some meaning to it. Yeah, I'm, I'm helping other people. It's pretty obvious. It's in your face. You know, if you're in the business world, it may not be as obvious to you. You may be doing great things for the country, for your for com your community and stuff, but it may not be as obvious for you. In healthcare, we just, you know, there we are. We're trying to help somebody who's sick. Uh, so I don't know. I think it's pretty prevalent in general because of what you were alluding to earlier, just how crazy this world is that we're in nowadays. I, I love what you said about the, the purpose uh, or having a why. Uh, Viktor Frankl talks about this, doesn't he, in, in regards of um, man's search for meaning, I think it's it's called, uh, when he was in the Holocaust, but he didn't feel as bad as everyone else because he had a, uh, you know, he had a why to, to live for, essentially. And I think that's really important, you know, whether it's you're thinking about clients, whether you're thinking about listeners in, in, in respect of a podcast or you're doing it for your kids. If you're a nihilist in respect of you don't think anything's worth it, you're not doing it for anything, that's why you think, well, what's the, what's the bloody point? There's nothing there's nothing here to, to 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 work for and that's when you go into this depressive state so it's always good to have something to, to aim at um and there's there's obviously loads loads of sort of stuff on that in terms of um you know if if you don't know what direction you're going no wind is favorable for, for example so there's loads of quotes on that so moving on to your novel then um so we're going to say something Oh, I, yeah, I, I was just going to say that uh, one thing that that I often tell medical audiences, at least, is if you are being very nihilistic, it may be a sign that you're burning out. So, you know, what came first in, in this case, sometimes I think, uh, you know, people who were very motivated and feeling that meaning and really, you know, really going at it can burn out. And that may be one of the signs that they are burning out, that all of a sudden it's like, ah, oh, geez, you know, I'm doing all this and, and not making any ground, not helping anything out or losing your empathy is another another sign often of burnout so just a quick one on that before we move on can you force this feeling of having a wider purpose so for example if if you're a professional football player you obviously love the sport you know you've you've grown up and you've you've loved it and that that purpose is very clear to you um whereas for other people it's maybe not as clear and they're having to force oh maybe you know i'm doing this for my kids or i'm doing it to go on holiday next year or whatever it's going to be if if someone is forcing it is it a case that they're maybe on the wrong path and they need to to maybe, well, either they're in burnout, as you've said, or maybe they need to maybe redirect the sale and, and head in a new, to, to pastures new? Yeah, I mean, certainly sometimes uh, I think we're just in the wrong fit for who we are. And uh, I think if we keep banging our head against the wall and nothing is nothing is uh, making any ground, it, it does... It is. Uh, it does deserve some real introspection. And frankly, Javon, the the you know the first step whenever we're talking about burnout and and trying to build our resilience, the very first step 
is to stop and take account of oneself. We call it self-compassion. And that is to sit down and think about yourself for a while. And it's so antithetical to a lot of people because you start feeling guilty. Oh, I should be, you know, worrying about my kids, my wife, my job, my, you know, this, that, but, but, uh, and so it can be hard for people, but I think periodically we need to stop Think about ourselves. Who am I? What am I trying to do? What what does bring me thrill? What brings me pleasure? What's bringing me down? What's you know what's making things so hard? Am I am I doing the stuff that that really matters to me? Um, you know, you don't have to love your job. It doesn't have to have all the meaning in the world. Maybe you see it as an ends, you know, as a means to an ends. I well, it does put food on the table. Okay, maybe I can appreciate it as such. But one way or the other, it, it, if we're going to help ourselves, we have to understand ourselves, or there, you don't even get out of the starting blocks. Yeah, definitely. As, as you said, you know, you can make it into something minuscule, like oh, to keeping a roof over my head. Maybe it's just to allow me to have enough money to 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 go and do the hobbies I like doing, or whatever it may be, or, or holidays and, and and whatnot. So, so talking about hobbies, was the, the writing of a book is that is that a, a sort of a, a passion of yours in terms of something you do after work and and things like that? And obviously, you you well, you went a bit of a similar boat to me in some respects. I've written also three nonfiction books. One's out, one's being published, and one is not yet finished. And I'm looking to maybe write a, a fiction book. So how was that transition for you to to change from a, a fiction to a non-fiction? Because I'm sorry, the other way around. Because I think that fiction must be a lot harder to write. <laughs> maybe writing good fiction. <laughs> I think uh I think it was easy, at least for me to to transition. It was uh, I called it, you know, verbal dysentery. I couldn't stop writing. Um, the uh, but I think to write good fiction probably is really hard, and I'm not sure I'm anywhere close to that yet. But um, one way or the other, uh, I found it really liberating um, when you write when you write nonfiction. I it's sometimes, I mean, that's my whole life has been writing nonfiction. You're always writing things about your patients. You're always writing about science, things that you're doing. You know, I mean, it's just one thing after another. Um, and it begins to feel like, you know, I'm back in grade school where I'm doing book reports, um, you know, just taking some facts and finding a way to put them on, you know, on a piece of paper. Uh, what what was nice about fiction is all of a sudden the world just bursts open and anything can happen and any person can enter into it and they can have any characteristics whatsoever. I mean, you can go in a million directions. And so what happened, for example, in my book was it was two and a half times longer than the finished product uh, because they just couldn't stop writing. They're just, you know, all these subplots and characters came in and, uh, you know, it, it, it wasn't that good to be to to just go that way. But it sure as heck was fun. You know, so I, I would argue probably easier to to actually get words on paper, at least in the style that I do it. Um, but harder when it comes down to whittling it down and editing it and making it more uh, cogent and all that sort of thing. Now, there are some fiction writers who, you know, every sentence 
is a work of art and they spend hours on it, that's not me at all. It just all spills that on the paper. So I don't know. What about you? What do you think you'll be? So are you a, are you a planner or a prancer? I, uh, I, it's a little bit of both. I mean, I, I have it somewhat mapped out, but um, you discovery once right, it gets off the yeah, I mean, once it gets off the ground, things start to happen, and and you know, you may not be able to control it. <laughs> I don't know if you've um you've heard that poem, and I think if you haven't, you'd really really enjoy it by Charles Bukowski. It's called um, "If You Want to Be a Writer." I don't, I don't, I know his work. I don't think I've read that one. You'd love it. It's, you know what? When you said I wrote this down, when when you said, "Oh, it was like I had verbal diarrhea," or, or whatever you said, similar. And um, it's one of the things you said. You said unless it comes flying out the page, and you and you and you, you know, if you're sitting there in front of your laptop and nothing's coming out, you're not ready. If you're doing it for for girls in your bed, if you're doing it for money, you know, don't do it. Um, unless it comes like roaring out of you, basically, don't do it. He goes, if you're waiting for it to roar out, if you keep waiting until you know that time is where it's it's there. And I really like, I really love that. Um, and obviously I'm bastardizing it a little bit. You know, he'd say that in much more eloquent ways than ways than that. But it really gives you a perspective to say, look, as you as you said, you know, you could open this whole world, and unless you have that feeling, I don't think you're ever going to be someone who writes anything good. Obviously, as you said, you know, you doubled the length of, of 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 the book because you have so much in there to actually write, and I think that's a sign of something that's going to be really, really, really good because you've got that passion for it, uh, essentially. So what is what is a novel about? It has, I understand it's got a neuroscience element to it. Yeah, I, I, uh, of all things, you know, they, they certainly talk about right about what you know. Uh, so it, it centers on a on a brain surgeon um, who's definitely overworked and uh, probably a workaholic, probably burned out to one degree or another, uh, who begins seeing things that he knows aren't there. Originally, he believes that he must be hallucinating. He's pretty sleep deprived and that sort of thing. Uh, but over time, he convinces himself uh, that they're ghosts. And uh, he begins having more and more experiences with these ghosts and uh, things start to come apart in his life. So, so what? Uh, I don't want any spoilers, of course. But uh, can you tell us a little bit about what goes wrong, and is it about the overcoming of obstacles, or again, is a is it uh, a bit of a a case of you, you don't want to give the game away? Oh no, I, you know it's it becomes a a challenge uh, for him. First of all, just to you know to keep track on what's reality and what's not. Uh, and uh, it puts a huge stress on his marriage. And also he just becomes uh, more and more irritable and uh, difficult in the workplace. It starts to threaten his work as he, again, is having a hard time distinguishing. Um, and he's trying to figure out what, you know, why am I being bothered by these ghosts? Uh, I'm hoping the reader looks at it saying, you know, are these ghosts real or you know is he losing his mind and what's contributing to that and what you know what could bring him some salvation or will he find his way or will things totally uh blow up what are your thoughts on um paranormal let's say activity is it a case of do you think like ghosts and souls and things exist or is it a case of of it just being a myth maybe i don't know 
Um, I, I have, uh, it's not my, it's not my term, but I really resonate with, um, what, uh, somebody called, um, that I guess I would consider myself an optimistic agnostic, meaning, um, I leave the jury out on, on the metaphysical on all levels, the metaphysical, the religious, you know, the, the supernatural or what, what's not immediately uh in front of us and and measurable um i, I i'm not going to exclude anything um so i don't want to be i i think a lot of people in the science world are are quick to dismiss anything like that and i think that's that's also some real fallacious uh thought processes uh but I don't know what to believe and I I'm not going to I'm going to I I'm not there on the other side. So I'm somewhere in the agnostic range uh hoping that yeah it would be nice to have a soul it would be nice to have some sort of afterlife it would be I'd be I'd be thrilled if I could meet a ghost. You'd be thrilled if you could meet a ghost obviously if, yeah. Um, yeah if you weren't deemed to be crazy then 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 yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but it's, yeah, it's well, an interesting that... discussion, though, isn't it? With with as you said, um, you know, things with with science, science isn't isn't is in itself a fallacy to an extent. You know, atoms. The word atom means um uncuttable in in Greek, doesn't it? Atomus. But then they found the quarks and and electrons that are smaller, so you can never know exactly what is true. There's always something else, and that's what fallibilism is. So, um, on a philosophical basis, how do we know what we know? I'm of um I believe in fallibilism in in some respects to say yes it could be true but also it might be disproved at a later point there are some things that are, are um are called uh, axiomatically true so like one plus one law was equal two for example that's that's pretty clear but there are a lot of other things that can't be sort of proven like before gravity was proved it still existed but only when it's proved people say, oh, this must really exist. So, but things are there beforehand. Now coming on to where I'm going with this. So for ghosts, for example, you know, when you turn on your television and there's an infrared ray that goes to the TV, we just can't see that because we're not on that plane. And, you know, we, we only see visible light, which is this on a, on a massive spectrum. Is there a case of there being ghosts on a different spectrum? And that's a, a whole different discussion, I, I'm sure. Yeah, but it, you know, in some ways, uh, it brings us, you know, to back to the neuroscience uh, when we when we remind ourselves that this machinery that we use to interpret all this uh, is not a perfect set of machinery. It's not. It filters out a huge amount. It doesn't pick up a huge amount of what's going around us, and even the stuff it does pick up, it filters out a lot, and then it presents to us stories that we can function within our environment using those stories uh you know to survive but if we think it's a one-to-one -one representation of what is going on around us we you know we're fooling ourselves and and it's uh you know it's a it's a very fallible machine it's easily tricked it doesn't store things all that all that well uh or at least retrieve them all that well um and so everything that we come up with, even our science, is is contrived by this system and interpreted by this system so that we can better, hopefully better understand what's going on around us, but more than anything, function around 
function within what's going on around us. So I, I think we, I think there's huge room for skepticism about anything. And I, to me, the ultimate science is, is scientific skepticism where everything gets called into question and we never truly prove things. We just eliminate certain other possibilities. Yeah, exactly. No, no, nothing can be proved beyond its hypothesis. Uh, beyond its hypothesis. Yeah, and that's it. It's and, um, it's a case of my theory versus your theory until a new theory comes and disproves that, and then that's a new sort of belief system for for a period of time. Um, you know, at some point they believe the Earth was flat, and it, if if anyone said anything different, you think they were an idiot. Are we now at that point again, but with something else? And in twenty, thirty years, I think, oh, these guys are idiots. Of course, ghosts exist. Of course, you know. God exists or whatever it may be um but but yeah there's there's a lot to sort of unpick uh with that sort of side of things in, in terms of as you said the metaphysical um so into, if people want to reach out and obviously read your book which is obviously a whole host of what we've discussed today where can they reach out and obviously if they want to speak to you directly as well Gary um, I do have a website, and it's just my name, Gary R. Simmons, uh, Gary R. S. I. M. O. N. D. S. dot com. So it's pretty easy to find. Uh, the books are there. A whole bunch of my writings there. I also I do some blogs for Psychology Today, uh, particularly you know uh, lately, and uh, I'd love for people to take a look at those and and uh, fire at me and know you know make some commentary. Uh, you never you never answered fully though, Javon. What your your take on the uh, paranormal? Um, so my take on the paranormal. So first of all, I don't believe there is aliens uh, out there. So people say, oh, the mathematics are oh, there's this many billions of galaxies. The probability that there is other life out there is very very high. That's the way they see it. And I actually invert that probability. I say, okay, no, the other, it should be the other way around. We are the one in the million. Not that there is that many out there and there should be another one, if that makes sense, based on the maths. So I say, no, out of all those millions and millions of galaxies, whatever it is, the chance of there being somewhere uh, perfect for human or, or life in general, that's that's the one in the million. Um, so that's the way I would I'll consider that. In terms of the paranormal, I do think there is... So this is going to get um, very... Um, I don't know how sort of muddy this might get. But in, so I'm going to take all religion out of this. There is a number of different ways that you can believe in in gods and metaphysics. There's obviously monotheistic religions where there's one god, polytheistic religions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There is also something called pan pantheism and panentheism. Mm -hmm. And pantheism is basically where nature is god. Mm -hmm. um, and the way I would explain that is like, well, DNA is like an inherent code. You know, if you divide a circle, it's always going to be pi to a long code. There's the golden ratio in in, in things, and all of, you know, if you if you zoom out the helixes of of the the galaxies, it all it all fits into sort of some sort of system. So I think, um, and the panentheism is basically that, but God also sits on top. So for me, I think there is certain things within the system that we understand at the moment. So we understand the rules on gravity. We understand the rules on um, uh, chemistry, for example, like the different elements and how they sort of um, come together. But with science, we're always a step behind. We do tests to work out the rules that are already there. We don't create rules. We discover rules. And I think that we've not yet got to a point where we can discover the paranormal. And there are things within 
Like, for example, in space, between planets, there's dark matter. No one knows what is what's in, in that space. And I think when we start to work out what that is, we're going to get an answer. And I think there is a possibility that, that there is something, but I don't know whether it's ghosts, sort of, sort of angels or, or some sort of alien, but I think there is something that still sits within our universe, but that it's not like an alien on a different planet with, you know, green skin and things like that. That's that's I know it's quite a loose answer, but I think with these sorts of things that there is there cannot be anything concrete. You can only go on what you understand and the probability of something happening and what that may look like. So that's that's what was my answer. Yeah, I think we're I think our camps are fairly close. Uh, you know, I I would think. Um, but yeah, and I you know, it's funny I I I read recently this, this article don't ask me why, but it was by a theoretical astrophysicist and it was just talking about the possibility that there could be infinite universes that each universe only differs from the last one by one subatomic particle. And but it it being infinite, therefore, you know, you can go through a complete range. And I'm just reading it and I'm thinking, you know, is this any different from holding religious beliefs, paranormal beliefs or anything like that? No. And and this is the way I, I, I would look at that as well. It's like I don't know the percentage, but we're like a very high percentage um, in closeness in terms of DNA to like bananas and cockroaches. <laughs> yeah. But but we have a huge divergence in what we look like and how we operate. So only a very small tweak in things can create something completely different. And and that's what people don't understand. You know, we, just because we are very similar to monkeys doesn't mean that we are exactly this. We are the same. Oh, well, you're 99% the same, but what about the 1% different? I'm 80% the same as a, a banana. It doesn't mean I'm a banana, <laughs> does it? You know, so I think that sometimes science can create fallacies within itself as to ways of thinking. You know, we can only think how we are programmed to think um and i think that sometimes that is massively the case um that we have been shoehorned into this sort of way of thinking that unless we prove something we cannot sort of open the the, the wheelhouse essentially um which is what well, empiricism probably from a philosophical standpoint you know you have to prove it and it's got to be something that you can measure and it's can you know, with senses can prove it. But the, I think there's more to life than just waiting for the scientists to say this is true, even when they are wrong, you know, at points. So, so yeah, it's just interesting the, the whole journey of life and see where it takes us. Yeah, and that's what makes it fun and, and fascinating, right? Absolutely. If everyone, you know, had the same religious beliefs and everyone drove the same car and everyone looked the same, life would be very, very boring because... You mentioned football. If everyone supported the same football team, who's going to support all the other football teams? Who's going to play? Who you know? It's going to be no fans. It's going to be boring. So we need differences between us, and this is what makes uh, life interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, somebody's got to root for Man U. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, thanks again, Gary, for being on the show. Been a, a valued guest. I, I mean, I've learned stuff. I've got you know some stuff written down here. So. Um, so yeah, I'm going to put all of the stuff in the show notes just to where people can reach out to you um, with regards to the books, etc. Um, is there anything final that you want to say uh, that maybe we've missed out? 
Um, just, I mean, one thing would certainly be thank you so much. I think this is uh, a delight. And this is the type of stuff I love. I love getting down into the weeds and uh, exploring different concepts. And the more you hear from other people, the, the more you learn. Absolutely. So um, I, I, it's just a sheer pleasure. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Gary.